Amen. And our hope is in that one small child. So thank you very much for that. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, please open them with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke in chapter 1. Let me pray. Lord, we are your people. So Lord, I pray that you would stand in front of me while I stand in front of them. Lord, I pray that you would talk over me while I talk to them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You made your Christmas plans yet? <laughs> it's going to be complicated this year, isn't it? It's complicated every year, but it seems like it's going to be a lot more complicated this year. But see, we're not surprised by that because God never promised that this life would be simple or safe or even satisfying. So the question is, what did God promise? What can we count on God to do? This is a question that came home to me when justice died. It came home to me when I was asking, okay, if I, can't keep, if I can't trust God to keep my kids safe, what can I trust him to do? What can you trust God to do? What can you trust God for? That's the question I want to wrestle with, with you from this text. So if you have your Bibles open with you, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. And I'll begin reading here in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah. So let's st stop a second here. Herod is a real guy. You can read about him in histories other than the Bible. Uh, Herod was quite an architect and a builder. And, and you can see in this artist's rendition of what um, Jerusalem looked like at the time of Jesus. There's Herod's palace uh, that stood over there in the corner. And also, Herod was the one that, that was behind, that drove uh, the building of the Temple Mount. A massive, incredible project. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, most of the stuff that you see that you'll be the most awestruck by, chances are good it was built or the brainchild of Herod the Great. In fact, uh, go back here, um, Rome didn't let other people, puppet kings, call themselves king. But they made an exception for Herod. He was politically ruthless, but also extremely strategic. He was a brilliant builder. He was a real guy that lived in history, and Luke's gospel is rooted in real life, real life history. And there's a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he and his he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. So he's a priest and he's married to a priest. A priestess. Sorry, a daughter of a priest. I'll get there. A daughter of a priest. I'm just thinking, I've just got to be honest. I'm just going to just open up and, and just say, I, I'm just struck by how well 
that reading from 1 Corinthians about the foolish things of the world, the small things of the world, how that fits this passage with Herod being the great builder, the king, and then that's not who the story, story focuses on. It focuses on a, on a no-name priest and his wife. Well done, Ken. I had nothing to do with that. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Hey, are, do they, are they hiding any secret sins? No. No, they're not. They're righteous before God. You need to know that. They tell you that first off because you're going to think they're hiding secret sins in a minute here. But they had no child. That's, that's why we read this. It's why it says it twice. They were righteous before God and they walked blamelessly. That's why you read that, is because what comes next makes you think that maybe that stuff isn't true. Because in that day, if you didn't have children, probably there's something wrong with you, and probably God is punishing you. That's what they thought. But they had no child, and it was Elizabeth's fault. At least that's what they thought, because Elizabeth was barren. And society blamed her for this. And both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, so your head is back at the Temple Mount area, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord. So the temple is that largest, tallest building in the middle of the Temple Mount that you can see under the yellow arrow. And he went in there to do something very specific, and that is to burn incense. You'll see burning incense quite a few times in this passage. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside. So, um, so men would have been praying where the blue arrow is. Jewish men would have been play, praying where the blue arrow is. The green arrow is pointing at the court of the women. The women weren't allowed to go, to go in to where the men were praying. At the hour of incense. So twice a day, a sacrifice is made, then they bring the coals and the incense into the holy place, and it's put on the altar. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So again, this is where the sacrifice is made. You can see where the red arrow is pointing. That's where the blood of bulls and goats was spilt. Then they would go inside, and there's the altar of incense standing before the Holy of Holies, where the curtain divides the presence of God. This is like being right outside the nuclear reactor of God's presence. Here's a close-up of it, a closer view. And in this paragraph I'm going to read to you that is circled um, underneath there, the ESV Study Bible has the holy place containing the lampstand. You can see that if you're looking closely and you have really good young eyes. Um, Contain the lampstand, the table for the bread of the presence. I think that's at the top right-hand side of that, of that room there. And the altar of incense. That's where the red arrow was pointing. An angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah on the right side of the incense altar. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Imagine the smoke-filled room from the coals and the incense and, and it's all burning and it's smoke and then all of a sudden there's an incandescent angel right over there to the right of the altar. You're like, I wasn't expecting to see you here. 
But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, I'm going to need to see some evidence. You're going to have to prove it. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is super old. Brendan has pointed out that these are Zechariah's last words for quite some time. You know, he goes home, and Elizabeth says, Tell me, what did you say? (laughs) Well, the last thing I said, For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angels answered him, so, so notice the eyes. This, I love this. I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this gospel or this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me. That's good news. That's gospel. This is something God did for me. In the days when he looked on me, God saw me. He saw what I was suffering. He saw me. And to take away my reproach among people. Reproach is not a word we use very often anymore. In some translations of the Bible, you'd see disgrace. He took away my public disgrace. Or you might see my public shame. He saw me, and he took away my public disgrace and my shame. So remember, remember the question that we started with, what, what can we trust God to do? And I, I think what we need to do is we need to go back and look at what God has promised because there's a lot of promises in this text that, that God keeps. He makes a promise and then he comes through on his word. So let's walk through them here. God has promised, number one, number one, it starts outside. It starts where the sacrifice was made where the blood of bulls and goats were shed. And then 
and then it goes inside to where, this is where the Gospel of Luke starts, and then it goes inside to, to the altar of incense. But, but remember, the book, the book starts in this room, and then it climaxes also in this room. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1, keep your finger there, but turn with me to Luke 23. Luke 23, as Jesus is dying on the cross, we read in Luke 23, verse 44, now, it was now about the sixth hour, it's about noon, and it gets scary dark, terrifying dark, supernatural dark, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. It gets that dark from noon to three, and you know something is Something big is going on. And while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The book begins in this room and it climaxes in this room as Jesus dies for our sins. Ending this system. This system that made a promise that it couldn't really keep. It, it promised to deal with our sins, but it couldn't really deal with our sins. And that's why they had to make sacrifices twice a day, every day. And they had to have 24 divisions of priests. Each one would come to the temple two weeks a year. One week in one part of the year, and then another week in another part of the year. And they would come, and they would be part of the goings-on and the sacrifices, and, and each one would get a chance. Eventually, their names are drawn by a lot, and they would go in, and they would do this incense before the Lord. And this whole system of repeated sacrifice over and over and over and over and over, Jesus brought to an end and made obsolete. And God showed that when the curtain was torn. Now here's why, here's why this matters to you. This matters to you because it means your sins are paid for. Look at me. Your sins are paid for. Your sins are paid for. They're taken away. So, so there's people that really struggle with self-harm. And I, I don't want to speculate as to why they're harming. I wonder if some of it is to try to punish themselves for things they've done. I just want you to know if that's you, your sins are paid for. Jesus shed his blood to take away your sin. Anything you do is redundant. And an insult to God who paid for your sins. Your sins are paid for. There's some people who think that what they really need to do for God to like them is to give really, really sacrificially. And I just want you to know, if that's your motivation, keep your money. That's an insult to Christ. Your sins are paid for. You were bought with a price. He paid for your sins. He, he loves you already. You are already forgiven. 
Now you're like, aren't you a hypocrite doing this year-end offering stuff? Well, we give because we're grateful for how he has paid for our sins, not to earn anything. We give because we're so thankful for the freedom that we have, and we can give knowing that it doesn't earn us doesn't earn us any more status with God. And so it can be selfless. There's some people that think that what they really need for, to do for God to like them is to work really hard and serve really hard. Be really good at serving. And I'm just telling you, that's, Jesus already served. He already laid down his life for us. You don't need to do anything more for God to like you. Your sins are paid for. The book begins in the temple, which made a promise that Jesus fulfilled when he died on the cross for our sins. Now we serve because we're thankful, because we follow the Christ who served, but not to earn us anything before God. So what does God promise to do? What can you take to the bank? God has promised to take away our sins. And he does when we trust him as our Lord and our Savior. Okay? What has God promised to do? God has promised to hear our prayers. This, this, was made, this promise was made, in a sense, by this incense altar. As this is what the incense pictured as as the incense was smoke that went up to God, that symbolized our prayers going up to God. And listen to what Gabriel says. I'm back in Luke 23. Let me come back to Luke chapter 1. He says in verse 13, Behold, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. He promises to hear your prayers. To hear your prayers. Now think about, think about what, what this meant. Because the miracle is a really good teaching tool. The miracle is, in a sense, the message. It, it explains the message. It teaches the message. So, I mean, you probably already know that priests, their job was to represent the people. And so let's just say for a minute that Zechariah and Elizabeth represent the people. And the picture they paint of Israel is of an Israel that is at the end of itself, that is old and that is without hope. And then what is the miracle? That God hears their prayers and does something new by giving them a baby who will be the catalyst for a new people to be formed. This is, this is the promise that is made. You see this beginning in verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready the Lord for the Lord a people prepared. So there is the answer comes on a very personal level. 
as the emptiness of their life that came with not having children, though they wanted to have children. The emptiness that they were experiencing was fulfilled as God did something new. It was also an answer to the prayers for the nation that this baby would be something new that God was doing in Israel. He would prepare a people for Jesus. And you see this people worshiping at the end of the book. This time I will remember to keep my finger in Luke, Luke 1. But I'm going to read to you from the very end of Luke. Luke chapter 24. And verse 51. And Jesus blessed them and parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So the, the, the gospel begins in the temple and ends in the temple. It begins with the angel promising Zechariah that he will do something new. It ends in the temple with that something new being already done as Christ's people are being formed. He hears our prayer and he answers in ways that are better than we could ever think or imagine. You believe that? He hears your prayers. Prayers you forgot you even prayed. Prayers you gave up on long ago. He hears your prayers. He's promised to hear our prayers and 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 he does. And third, third, he promises to take away the reproach. Take away the curse. We believe that in the beginning God created a good heavens and a good earth. But then we sinned. And with sin, because of sin, God cursed the earth and that the earth is frustrated and broken. And that Jesus didn't just look at us and say, well, that's a terrible, stinking mess. I hope they figure that out. But Jesus came. And that's what we celebrate on, at Christmas, is Jesus showing up love. Jesus showing up and entering our mess, love. That he came and he died for our sins, rose again, that he will return and when he returns, finally, at the end of all things, he'll, he'll lift the curse. This is what we see in the book of Revelation. The world will be unfrustrated, that the world will be made new. And see, that's what this, this miracle points towards, is her barrenness is taken away. That the, the pain and the frustration of barrenness, remember she wasn't barren because she'd sinned. She was barren because the world was frustrated and broken that one day that will be taken away. So I, I want you to actually see it, though. Um, so I'm going to bounce back a couple slides here and look at this. Now, the Lord has done for me. This is what Elizabeth prays after she finds out that she's pregnant. She prays, the Lord has done for me. Did she do it? Who did it? The Lord. That's really important for you to keep straight in your mind. The Lord did this. The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. That's really important. We'll talk about that again later. When he looked on me to take 
away. Those two words are what I want to focus on. Take away my reproach among the people. You see, if reproach can be taken away, if I could have a... If reproach can be taken away, it can also, you can also give it to people. And so here's what she'd been experiencing for years. For years and years and years. She experienced the emptiness that came with barrenness and the public shame that made it worse. I mean, emptiness that comes with barrenness is bad. But it's even worse when people look at you and judge you. And it's like people adding reproach and adding reproach and adding public shame and adding public shame again and again and again. It, you know, it's, it's the questions like, like, don't you guys want kids? Like, so when, when are you going to have a baby? You hiding something? You know, it's the whispers behind your back that had just been reproached, that was added to her and added to her and added to her and added to her. She carried around with her. I, I mean, I don't think barrenness has the same connotations today. But in some circles, in some circles, unwanted singleness might. Where you're constantly at. I mean, there's a loneliness that comes with unwanted singleness. Like, I don't want to be single, but I am single. Now, if you're happy and single, you're happy and single. But if you don't want to be single, but you're single, you're like, there's a loneliness that comes with that. And it makes it worse when people are like, so when are you going to have a boyfriend? Or when are you going to get a girlfriend? Or, you know, what's the problem? And people give you all kinds of tips and advice or assume something's weird about you or broken with you. And it just is like this thing that you're carrying around. Some people might say this kind of comes with a disability. Not something you want. Something you carry, and it's frustrating to have a disability. It's frustrating. But what makes it worse is when people are condescending towards you, or people assume something's wrong with you, or people don't understand. See, look what God does for them. This is the promise. When God overturns the curse, that he will take away our reproach, and it will be something that we will be done with. When God overturns the curse, barrenness won't even be a category anymore in heaven. Unwanted singleness won't even be a category. Disabilities won't even be a category. Let alone the emptiness or the frustration or the loneliness that's associated. Those things have an enemy, and it is Christ. And he will eradicate the emptiness and the loneliness and the frustration that we feel on the day when he overturns the curse. Come, Lord Jesus. This is what the miracles 
promise that, that what God does for these people that one day he will do for us. And, and this, is, this is something that you see throughout the Bible as these miracles show us what heaven, what heaven will be like. So, so as, we get our, as we get our minds around this, we should ask, okay, then, then what should we do? And, and here's what I'd suggest for this week. I'd suggest rereading Luke chapter 1. Read through Luke chapter 1 again and remember the difference between already and not yet in the promises of God. So in, in, in this very chapter, you can see the difference between already and not yet. So I, to help you with this, I'd like to show you Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. So I'm going to read but Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. 10, 11 Hebrews, if you want to write it down and look it up later, or you can flip there with me quick. But Hebrews 10, 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service. This was written when the temple was still standing, and priests did stand daily at their service, slaughtering animals or burning incense. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, like your self-harm, or like your giving, or like your serving. All those things can never take away sins. Just like the old sacrificial system. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Do you see the already and the not yet there? The already is that Christ has already died for our sins. He has already provided forgiveness for our sins. He has already taken away our sins. But he has not yet put the enemies under his feet. So if I was to make a promise to you that everyone who is barren will have a baby by the end of the week, I would be extremely confused. I would be getting it wrong. I would be confusing the already and the not yet. If I promised all of you a spouse that wanted one, I would be confusing the already and the not yet. If I promised all of you healing, I'd be promising you heaven while we still live here. So keep in your mind clear the difference between promises that will still come true one day and promises that have already come true. Jesus has already died for our sins. This is in the past. He will one day put his enemies under his feet. This is in the future. And in the present, he is doing a new thing, growing his church. You need to read this again and keep straight the difference between already and not yet. Second, read it again and see God's heart for the hurting. See God's heart and how he hears and how he sees. So remember that he hears and he sees even when he's silent. Look, they went for years and years and years. How many years? I don't know. Did they get married in that culture? Maybe when they were, maybe when she was 15? I, I don't know how old she was when she got married. And how old is she now? When I don't know. Maybe there's 40 years. 
Maybe they went 40 years thinking that maybe in the back of their minds, maybe God doesn't hear, maybe God doesn't see, maybe God doesn't care. And then, and then God redeems their pain, their emptiness, their public shame to do a new thing. They went 40 years not having any clue how God was going to redeem it for good. But God redeemed it for good. Would it help you bear it? If you knew that God was going to redeem it for good? Would it have helped them endure years of, em- years of emptiness Years of public shame if they knew that one day God would redeem it for good? I think it would. But here's the thing. You have that promise. You have that promise in Romans 8, 28 that God will redeem it for good. But while you wait, remember that he hears and sees. Finally, finally, this is, read this again and see how God forms our faith, how God forms us and prepares us for heaven. So, Zechariah is in the, in the holy place in front of the altar in the Smoke is going up, and the angel is at the right hand of the altar. And Gabriel, the angel, says to him, your wife's going to have a baby. And he says, I'm old, and she's old, and I need proof. And he says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're not going to say any more dumb things. You're going to be quiet now. On the one hand, that seems like kind of a punishment. Um, Because he can't talk anymore. On the other hand, I just have a lot of empathy for Zechariah. And and I know that if it was me, and I was on my way home a couple days later, and I was thinking, did I really see an angel in there? Did I really? And so I go to talk to the person next to me about, you know, what's for lunch, and I can't. I'm like, yep, I guess I did see an angel. I guess that was real. You know, I get home, and I'm like, you know, did I really see an angel in there? Did I really have this promise? And I go to say hi to Elizabeth, and I can't. I'm like, okay, I guess that was real. I guess we are going to have a baby. See, there's, there's part of this that is like a correction, if you're going to speak like this, I'm going to correct you, and you're not going to speak like that anymore. There's also part of this that is a blessing that says, I know you have weak and feeble faith, and I will give you a reminder so that you can keep trusting me through this pregnancy. I hope we are a people that trust God to form our faith, that trust God, prepare us for heaven. That's who we want to be. 
We want to be a people that are able to give and give generously, that are able to serve and serve well, serve selflessly because we believe our sins are paid for. And we want to be a people that see and hear others because we believe that God sees and hears us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that you pull us towards yourself. Lord, I pray that you would you would remind each one here of the difference between already and not yet. You'd remind each one here that you hear and you see. That you'd remind each one here that you strengthen feeble faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.